Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Succession is a dirty word in any industry, but farming seems particularly averse. If mentioned at all, it is in slippery euphemisms, being put out to pasture, buying the farm. Life on the land means just that. If your job is your life, retirement can mean death. There was no need for dad to stop farming just yet. And if he or mum were thinking about it, they didn't say so. But getting him to heed his doctor and take it easy would be a challenge. This is a man who, on childhood beach holidays, pushed wheelbarrows filled with seaweed, cattle just love the stuff, through throngs of sun tanners back to our family car. You may be the only person in the state of New South Wales to know that you are legally allowed to forage 20 kilograms per person per day. Not for him, a summer book and a pina colada. He needed projects, mechanical, architectural, agricultural, to relax. Always active, my father was like a shark. Stop him moving and he would suffocate. Sam Vincent's writing has appeared in The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, Griffith Review and The Best Australian Essays. His first book, Blood and Guts, was long listed for the Walkley Book Award and in 2019 he won the Walkley Award for long-form feature writing. Today I'm talking to Sam Vincent about his new book, My Father and Other Animals. Sam, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. There's a stereotype that we like to think of when we talk about an Australian farmer, a man of the land. Does your father fit with what we might think of as the archetypal Australian farmer? No, I don't think so. Um, for starters, I think part of that archetype is that the man on the land is, is fighting the land. He has his boot on the land's throat, lest it, lest it leap up and, and bite him. Uh, I think my dad has, has for a long time seen nature as an ally rather than an adversary. So he tries to farm, farm with it and, and using what he calls um, a free lunch, things like sunlight and, and rainfall and cow manure to, uh, to bolster his productivity. So I think that makes him quite different to uh, old-fashioned Australian farmers. And uh, another thing is uh, he doesn't really consider himself a, a real farmer. He, uh, he had a city job. He was a, an economist for, for several decades. And Although he had this small farm when I was growing up, uh, when he retired, he, he, um, it coincided with him buying a bit more land and he had this retirement hobby of 650 acres, which to a lot of people and a lot of parts of the world is, is a big farm. But for him, it was, it was still just a, a little trifle. So I think that says, it says a bit about him. He has a lot of energy and this was just a, a fun little thing you do as a hobby. Uh, his, his former colleagues like to play golf when they retired, but he managed this big farm. And Golion is the property we're talking about. Where is Golion? Golion is in New South Wales, but just north of the ACT. Uh, it's actually within three kilometres of the ACT's border. So it's in the southern tablelands. It's kind of high, cold grazing country, uh, very hilly. Uh, some woodland, but a lot of the paddocks are, are quite exposed. And even though it's really close to Canberra, because it's it's hilly, it's it doesn't seem like that. It's um, to get to Canberra, you have to drive, take some really rough dirt roads, and it's close, but it feels like another world. 
Now, succession, uh, succession in farming is, is at the heart of this book, the passing of the property from one generation to the next. Was there a sense of expectation on your parents' part that this would happen? And at what stage of your life did the prospect of succession become a consideration for you? Yeah, I think there's an assumption that there was parental pressure for me to take on the farm, but that was not at all the case. Um, I started working with my father in 2014 after uh, the last of several accidents he was having. I realised that he, he really needed, needed some help more than anything just to, to stay fit and healthy. I was living in Canberra. I was working in Canberra. I didn't see myself as a, as a future farmer at all. Um, I guess I just kind of I'd, I'd put off questions of what would happen to the farm once my parents were no longer farming it. And for the first few years I worked with my dad, it wasn't about succession. It was a, a fun way to do physical activity, to get to know him. I felt like I didn't really know him that well up until that stage and to, um, to give him a hand. And then uh, quite subtly and gradually it became a, a process of succession. And the way the language we used, I noticed, started started changing a bit. Um, there's a big hill uh, neighbouring Golion and it's owned by a, a rather rich person who's built a big mansion on it. And one day my dad said, oh, he'll probably buy you out one day. He was having a bit of a go at me saying that I'll be bought out, but it was, it was still this implicit. So it was really on me who decided to, to take this on. Um, even though I grew up here, I, I feel like I didn't really... I didn't engage with the landscape to a profound level. I didn't understand how it worked um, until I started work with my father. And, and that process really made me fall in love with Golion to the point that uh, now when, when people comment on the, the power lines that blight the landscape here, I, I prefer to say they dot the landscape. I'm so defensive of it. I wanted to, to keep looking after the farm and I, I could see after years learning about how my dad farmed in a regenerative way, a way that, that, that heals the past detrimental land clearing and grazing practices of the past, I wanted to continue that good work and, and I had a stake in it. I, I didn't want to stop now. And, and, and it's, a, it's a huge responsibility but also a, a fantastic privilege to have 650 acres of, of the earth that is under my stewardship and care and, and I, I take that very seriously. At what point did it change from that farmhand to the point of being a custodian? Well, I think when I started working with my father, I, I didn't even understand that he was uh, a regenerative farmer. Regenerative agriculture is, is on the rise around the world. And it, it's, it's this philosophy, it's a, it's a paradigm shift, which, which uh, replaces the old productivity-based farming to outcomes, outcomes of soil health, uh, landscape health community health, even cultural health. And a lot of people may sneer at that and say, well, you still have to make a living. But time and again, regenerative farmers have been shown to, to actually improve their profits because once you're farming with nature rather than, than, than fighting it, you're no longer putting in all these inputs, all these bought fertiliser, all this bought hay. And so your costs really plummet. And so there is an opportunity to make money as well as, as, well as seeing it more as... as as, as something that you are the custodian of rather than a resource to exploit. So I think when I started learning about my dad's philosophy, I, I was really inspired by that and, and bought into it. But also there's a the moment in the book I write about 
um, when I established my own project on Golion, which is a, a fig orchard, 100 fig trees that I'd started planting uh, around 2015, 2016. And, and I think that was a big moment. Suddenly I had, I had something that was, that was mine, that I'd done. And it's wintertime now and I'm pruning the figs and, and spreading compost around them. And it's a really great feeling to see these trees that, that I grew from, from tiny cuttings. This it wasn't part of the uh, continuing my parents' work. This is something I started. And I, I think that made me bound to the farm and, and want to continue being here and working here. And with any new project, and particularly one like this on the land, there's always an enormous learning curve. And uh, I can't imagine a potentially steeper learning curve than turning from a white collar worker, which I think you were, to a farmer. How was that process for you? Yeah, all kinds of little things that my dad would would criticise me for doing wrongly, from even from seemingly simple tasks like digging a hole. I didn't know how to dig a hole properly with a crowbar. Uh, I didn't know how to how to mend a fence. Uh, and I, I still, to be honest, uh, mechanical engineering feats are not my strength as a farmer. But but I've I've slowly gotten much better at um at working with animals and plants. And and I think the most valuable valuable lesson that my dad imparted on me it was a steep learning curve but but one that I just wasn't aware of was was he says the most valuable part of farming is paying attention and that's simply walking around and observing what's happening and what's wrong what what should this scene look like is there anything that 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 is raising alarm that that kind of thing it took a little while to learn but uh for example this morning I was I was before joining this podcast, I was out walking around, um, not only checking the cattle herd, checking the new calves, but I was walking around the paddocks where they had been. Little calves can get left behind in paddocks when they're moved. So I was just just double checking that there was no one left behind. And that's something that I, I didn't think to do uh, previously when I, when I started farming. I just didn't know that, that that happened. You look at the land differently now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think a lot about how it it would have looked in 1788 or 1820s when, when white people first arrived here. And even earlier, thousands of years before that, when different uh, mosaic burning techniques were used and well before that, when there were megafauna here. So I, I guess I, 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 I'm extremely at home in this landscape. I, I feel very close to it, but I'm aware that it's, it's always in flux uh, and I'm, I'm kind of looking for signs of that and, what was here and what can I do to try and improve the function of, of this landscape? Things like eroded creeks, how can I, uh, I revegetate them? How can I get them going again? Or I can see where there were once huge trees just because of the, the shape of the land where there's been indentation, where a tree has fallen over and the roots have, have, have made an indentation. Um, and maybe that's now a bare paddock and that indicates that Previously, it would have been an open woodland. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to return a bit to, to, to a, a state when, when this landscape was functioning a little better. We've talked a lot about your father, but let's talk for a moment about your mother and her role in this. Life on a farm often means gender roles aren't necessarily clearly defined. Did she come from a farming background herself? She did, uh, and from a farm that even my father would, would consider a proper farm. Western District Grazier in Victoria, his farm was 1,300 acres, so exactly twice the size of Golion, some of the best country in, in Australia. And he was the president of the Royal Agricultural 
Society of Victoria. Um, so she grew up on the farm. She studied agricultural science with my dad at uni um, where they met. So she wasn't at all just, well, I shouldn't say just a farm wife, but she wasn't in the kitchen or just caring for the kids. She was an active part of, of what was happening out in the paddock and her influence is still seen everywhere on Golly On today. There's, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of native tree shelter belts um, and shrubs that she planted or got my dad and, to plant to, so as to attract native birds. Um, she's, she's really good at identifying grasses and different weeds, so she helps out a lot, um, telling, me, telling me what to look out for and what I need to address. So, yeah, it was very much a team effort, and, and that was something I was aware of when I was writing this book, that I, I didn't want her to be in the shade too much. Uh, it was tricky because it, at its core it is a book about me and my father working together in the paddock, but... Uh, I was trying to get my mum into it as well, even though there's not a lot of action scenes of me and her and the paddock working together, I guess. But, but her influence is, is everywhere. Let's turn back to what you mentioned a moment ago, figs, and you now grow figs or you're a grazier and you grow figs. How did figs become part of your thinking? My parents planted this mixed orchard of 70 trees of different things nearly 40 years ago. Um, so as to be self-sufficient. I don't know how many kids they were planning on having because now that's a lot of fruit. And uh, one of the, the best performing trees, I guess, in terms of the fruit it produces and how healthy and vibrant it is, is a, an old black Genoa fig tree in that top orchard. It's, it's just incredible. I'm not sure if it's the genetics of the tree itself, um, the slope it's on, something about the soil, the compost my parents fed it, but it's it's, it's amazing. It's a picture of health still. And, and so when we started discussing what could be a little project of my own on the farm, uh, I, I can't even remember whose idea it was to, to, to really replicate this fig, but it, it, was, it was a perfect idea because we knew that it was something that grew well here. And we also knew that it was something that there'd be a market for. Uh, at that stage, I'd already started selling a bit of fruit from the old 40-year-old orchard to some restaurateur friends in Canberra, and everyone raved about the figs. I didn't realise how good these figs were. I just grew up with them and took them for granted, but I learned that figs are notoriously hard to transport, so you don't often get fresh good ones, and I was only 20, 30 kilometres away from these restaurants. Yeah, and the quality of the the, the fruit itself had a, had a great, great taste. So I started taking cuttings from this mother tree so as to perfectly replicate the, um, the genetics. And, and now I've got a, an orchard of, of around 100 little ones that are, that are, that are booming uh, this, this past fig season from about early March until the end of May uh, was huge. And I was selling to around 10 restaurants and there was only one one week where I thought, wow, I've got, I've got too many figs. Like next year, definitely I'm going to have a stall at the local Canberra's, Canberra farmer's markets. But there was one week I thought, I, I just have too much stock. What am I going to do? And I got a phone call from a bakery and they wanted to do a special Mother's Day pastry. And they, they said, do, did I have 650 figs? And I, I thought I did. And I spent hours picking and weighing and I easily was able to sell that. I mean, it turned out to be 42 kilos of figs. So that was nice. It's, it's, it's already starting to, to, to pay off uh, having this little project. Large part of this book is devoted to your life as a grazier as well as a grower of figs. 
And that was preceded by what you call grazing school. What is grazing school? Regenerative agriculture can kind of encompass lots of different styles of farming. But the main thing that links them is farming with rather than against nature and um, and cattle farming, which is was often correctly demonised as being incredibly environmentally harmful. It, it can be done in a way that's very different to American-style factory farms. And, and that's what I learned at grazing school. Um, what we were taught was called holistic planned grazing. And the idea is to replicate how herd and predator ecosystems function in the wild. So if you think of the Great Plains of North America, where there are a lot of bison or reindeer in northern Scandinavia, these big herds are constantly on the move. They're on the move because wolves, other predators, are keeping them on the move. They're also bunched together because that's their safety in numbers. And so what holistic plant grazing tries to do is replicate that. Uh, we don't have wolves, but we can build a lot of fences, which means that the cattle, in this case, are being moved through the landscape a lot. So they're not just in one big paddock, which is the traditional way of, of farming, but rather every few days or every few weeks, depending on how fast the grass is growing, they're moved. And what this means is while they're in these smaller paddocks, they're bunched together, they're intensely grazing, they're, they're pooing and weeing everywhere, so they're fertilising the soil. After they leave, it kind of looks like a bomb's gone off. It's, 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 it's a mess. But the beauty then is in the rest and recovery. It means that if you have all these paddocks that you're, you're moving the cattle through on a circuit, then what's left behind is up to a year in our case where no animals are grazing these paddocks. And the recovery compared to the way uh, sheep have been grazed here or even cattle when my parents started is, is simply amazing. Um, there's much less bare ground. There's a much higher biodiversity of species, many more perennial grasses, which are great for, uh, for burrowing deep into the soil and getting nutrients, more native species. And so that's what I learned at grazing school. And that, that's what I practice here. Um, it, it can be a hard sell to a lot of people. I, a, lot of, a lot of people in particularly big cities, when I say I'm a farmer, they're interested in hearing about the figs. But when I say I have cattle, they, they kind of, I can see in their eyes, they think I'm an environmental vandal. But, but this, this style of farming, even though, of course, cattle are native to this, this continent and they've, they've done a lot of damage, but I would argue that's not because of the cattle. It's, it's because of the way they were grazing they were just left in one place for too long and they would eat all the grass and then it would be bare and blow away they were pushing pushing too hard the farmers farmers had them in one spot for way too long and, and we're trying to reverse that not by taking cattle out of the landscape but by using them a bit differently and it's crazy to get your head around but i guess what i'm trying to do is is use cattle instead of fire sticks in this landscape there's a grassland a natural rangeland like the southern tablelands of New South Wales. Um, there were trees here, but it was never a, a forest before settlement, white settlement. And, and so there was always something recycling the, the, the grasslands. And, and before cattle and sheep, it was, it was fire. It wasn't kangaroos. They, they played a different role in the, in the landscape. And before it was fire, going back a long time, it was megafauna. Grazing school taught me to, to think of cattle in this way as as, as tools, 
Um, and of course, if you're using them as tools, you don't need to use tractors, other tools, which uh, which aren't as not as not as pleasant to use, but but aren't as, as as good for building soil either. So yeah, that that's what I learned at, at grazing school. I guess that the big takeaway the teacher used to always say was it's it's not the cow, it's the how. And um, there's some great great studies coming out of regenerative farmers and being able to sequester a lot of a lot of carbon through having these these healthy grasslands, diverse perennial grasses which are sucking down carbon. Of course, cattle emit methane, but this can be offset by the the bulk of carbon that is sucked down through grazing them appropriately. Whereas if you have cattle in an old system where the, the grass is just not being replaced and you're just emitting methane but not really sequestering any carbon. So it's 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 a net loss. Uh, and we're we're doing the opposite. If you dig into pretty much anywhere now, you will find this rich, smelly, moist soil full of worms. And it didn't used to be like that when my parents started farming here and and prior to them when it was just a, a kind of a dust bowl that had been ravaged by sheep, sheep and cattle. So um, yeah, that's that's what I, I learned at grazing school. It uh, sounds like a wonderful outcome. And I've only got one more question for you, and it's about your relationship with your father. At the beginning of the book, you say you weren't particularly close to your father. How has that changed through the process of succession? I guess he, he was a, a bit of a mystery to me. He's, uh, he's always been loving and supporting, but um, he's a quite typical Australian man of his generation and quite laconic, a man of few words. And uh, I think farming with him provided us this really lovely atmosphere where we didn't have to say a lot to each other, but there was a lot of shared non-communicative activity, building fences, uh, working on the creek, moving cattle, vaccinating calves, where I kind of got to know him a bit better and I could see how much Golion meant to him. And and really, even though I don't, I don't think he'd call himself a greenie, but how how much he cares about nature uh, and, and, and what it means to him and and what an impact it's made on him and that, that he's made on, on the farm. Uh, one of the last days we farmed together before he and my mother moved down the coast, we were at the creek and he said he thought it was one of the best things he'd done in his life, which was a, a pretty big and emotional statement for, for him. So, yeah, I, I've, I've really gained this new appreciation of, of him as a, as a, as a soft greenie who's worked so hard to um, try and try and reverse the damage that was done to this part of Australia. And, and yeah, I, I really appreciate that time we spent together. So I could, could learn that about him. And I definitely feel much, much closer to him now than, than I did when I started farming here with him. Sam Vincent, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been talking to Sam Vincent about his new book, My Father and Other Animals. It's published by Black Ink, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.